Our scripture reading this afternoon is from Acts chapter 14. We hope to read verses 1 through 20. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas go from Iconium to Lystra. And then the sad event of the stoning of Apostle Paul following the miracle that made them react in one way, but then at the end of the account, another way. Let us read then Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews, and so spake that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Long time, therefore, abode they, speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of His grace, and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, and part held with the Jews, and part with the apostles. And when there was an assault made both of the Gentiles And also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them. They were ware of it and fled unto Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and unto the region that lieth round about. And there they preached the gospel. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, and who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lyconia, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius, because they were the chief speaker. He was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before the city, their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates, and would have done sacrifice with the people. Which, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We are men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness, and that he did good, and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people, that they had not done sacrifice unto them. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, 
who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as a disciple stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Thus far in the reading of God's holy word, may he bless um, his word to his glory and to the good um, of his people. Dear congregation, I invite you again to open God's word to Acts chapter 14. And we hope to consider especially verses 8 through 20, this, this narrative of their Beginning to speak and preach in Lystra, the miracle of this lame man, the response of the people, and the, the immediate turn of events at the end of that response. And as an introduction, we, we are reminded that as we study through Acts, we, we have mentioned this from time to time, that even as it is the Acts of the Apostles, of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the acts of the Lord Jesus Christ through His apostles. Some have called it also the acts of the Holy Spirit. It is through the Holy Spirit whom Jesus has sent that Jesus continues to work. And you'll remember that the very last words of the Lord Jesus in, registered in the book of Matthew The Lord Jesus said this, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So when Jesus commanded His apostles to go, His disciples to go, He promised that He would go as well. He promised His presence, and if His presence, also His power. And today we we will take a moment as we look at this narrative to even focus upon that. That even though we have here Paul and Barnabas in in their first missionary journey, and in this one event, um, we could do this in essence throughout all of these events and all of these narratives, that Jesus is there with them. Um, we, we see the presence of Jesus in that these miracles keep happening just like they did in the life of Jesus. And, and we read here that as they were in Iconium, that was granted to them signs and wonders. That, that means that miracles were happening. Luke is recording here in Lystra only one of them for the sake of an illustration. But there were more. And it's the same thing in the life of Jesus. Remember, John said we could write many more things. There would be many books that could be written of all the many things Jesus did and taught. It's a summary that we have these four Gospels. And we have seen also the Lord Jesus in in the life and in the attitude of the apostles. The love that they have shown. um, The the willingness. the, The grace. And then also, of course, we have seen the Lord Jesus in the messages that they have proclaimed. And we have seen the Lord Jesus also in his coming before Saul, in his conversion. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we we can't lose track as we study Acts 
that Jesus is there showing his presence and his power. And, and we do this not, not only to see it in the text, but to be encouraged and to be reminded that we, we are living the continuation of the book of Acts. The promise that Jesus made to his apostles, and we see it happening, that he would be with them, that he would bless their ministry, that his power would go with them, it continues today. The Lord Jesus is with us, his presence and his power. And this is, in a way, one of the main things that we hope to consider as we look and work through this narrative. Now, Paul and Barnabas, in the last um, two events, they have literally been going from one city to the next because of persecution. It started in that Antioch of Pisidia. If you go to verse 50 of chapter 13... It shows that the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. So with this, they go to Iconium. They minister there for a while. But then if you go to verse 5, we read in verse chapter 14, verse 5, And when there was an assault made, both of the Gentiles and also the Jews, with their rulers, to use them despitefully and to stone them, they were aware of it and fled unto Lystra and Derby. So persecution has been following them. It hasn't become um, physical, but it's become dangerous. And because they fleed, fled is why it didn't become physical. They, they almost were stoned in Iconium. And now they arrive in Lystra. And as you saw, the very last couple verses, Paul is stoned. So persecution will become now very tangibly dangerous, um, at least to Apostle Paul. But here they arrive in Lystra, and we, we hope to see in our first point the, the miracle, but then we will look something to some degree regarding the myth and the mythology. Why, why is it that these people ascribe deity to Paul and to Barnabas? And, and this will lead us to the message of Paul in, in his protest against their desiring to worship them. They, they go from being persecuted now to this city to being worshipped. And Paul is wanting to stop them. But in so doing, he gives them a message. And uh, there is a mob round about them. And that mob is, is wanting to worship them. They're confused by his message. And as you saw at the end, at the very end that mob turns against them and persecutes Paul. And so in our third point, we will look at the martyr. Um, Paul um, is martyred here in the sense that he is a witness and he, they are trying to make him a martyr. They are trying to kill him. When we look at the word martyr, we always think of someone who dies in his witness. But we need to remember that the word martyr means witness. And so while you are living as a witness, you are a martyr in that sense of the, of the nature of the word. Um, through, through the fact that so many witnesses died, the word martyred is now understood by us in terms of vocabulary as one who dies. And, but he is being a martyr. And we will look at the reality of the Messiah. And as I start from the very onset, we, we are really seeking to see Christ in His presence and in His power throughout all of that is happening, all that is happening. So let's begin by looking at the miracle. In our first point, the miracle and the myth, we start with the, with the miracle. 
They are there in Lystra. Um, in, in verse 7, it, it shows that they've been there for a while, and there they preached the gospel as they arrived in Lystra. The next city will be Derby, And we don't know how long this was, but they were there for a while, preaching the message of the Lord Jesus, giving more details. The people that were round about them, you can imagine that, that scenario where there were some who still hadn't heard the full news. There were some who heard it from others. And then there were some who had been following Paul and Barnabas and hearing more and more. And this man who, who is found in Lystra and who was a cripple from his mother's womb. We, we don't know the amount that he knew, but he knew enough where there was an element of faith. And, and when you think of this faith, you need to think of it in, in two ways. They that this would indicate that he had heard the gospel and believed, but he had also understood that this Christ whom they is presenting is powerful to heal, and he believed that he could be healed. And we know that that is specifically part of what that mean, that, what, what that faith pointed to, because it says that Paul perceived that he had faith to be healed. Now, we, we can't think that this was only a faith to be healed apart from a faith in Christ, because see, this is all about Paul and Barnabas that would be in this man a concept of faith, would have to have the message of Christ because they never divorced one thing from the other. If he believed he could be healed, this indicates that he had learned about a Jesus who could heal him and who had died on the cross, who, who had a come out of the grave and who was alive and well because remember that was a summary of the message of Paul and Barnabas so there's this man who was crippled he could never walk from 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 his mother's womb so this man had never walked verse 8 even though there's very little that we hear about this man there's an intensifying of the very great misery of this man he was from his mother's womb crippled and he never had walked if we, if we for a moment put ourselves in the sandals of this man and think of a life that would be relegated to, to begging, um, to depending completely on other people, um, it was a very sorry and sad um, existence. But right here, we are made to think of the presence and the power of Jesus because our minds go back to the ministry of Jesus the Lord Jesus healed also a lame man who had never walked. Um, the first thought comes to our mind when Jesus was there at the pool of Bethesda. And remember when he met that man and he asked him, he asked him, would you like to be made well? And the man explained, I, I would, but every time the water stirs, and remember, from time to time, an angel would come and stir the water, and whoever arrived first was healed. And it was a pool where many sick folk would hang around waiting for the troubling of the waters. And that man could never arrive there in time, and so he was always with his, with his limitation upon him. And the Lord Jesus looked upon him, and he said, Rise. Pick up your bed and walk. No, it's, it's, it, we're not making things up when we know. It's something we can know that God's Word is reminding us, the ministry of Christ. When, when Paul looks at this man and he says to him, Stand up on thy feet. And he leaped and he walked. You know, there's, there's a, 
a harmony there in, in terms of, of this miracle. Paul, Paul is not the powerful one doing this miracle. It is, it is Jesus who is doing this miracle. And he is using his servant Paul. And, and it wasn't too long ago in the book of Acts where Peter saw a lame man when he and John were going to the temple. And remember, he looked upon that man and they told that man to stand up and walk. And he did. And he began to leap and to walk and to praise the Lord. And so all of these miracles are to remind us and to, to, to show us the, Christ's promise that he would be with his people is being fulfilled. Jesus is there. He's doing this. Paul and Barnabas are not alone. They, they are fulfilling the ministry of Christ. And he said, lo, I will be with you always, even to the ends of the world. And to Paul and Barnabas, it felt like they were the, in the ends of the world. And, and Jesus is there with them. But then with this miracle, there's a reaction. When the people saw what Paul had done, verse 11, they lifted up their voices. So there's a rejoicing. There's, a, there's this, this gladness. And they were saying, and in the speech of Lyconia, this, this is an important parenthesis because it shows that Paul and Barnabas did not understand immediately why the people were so full of joy. And, and if you're not understanding their language you would probably presume they're happy because this man was healed. Yes, they were, but in their minds, they're thinking, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. If they understood their language immediately, that's what they would have heard, and the reaction in Paul and Barnabas would have been immediately here. But it wasn't. Paul and Barnabas are seeing how elated they are and how joyful. And in their minds, they're having to process the whole understanding. They're, they're probably confused because they're probably thinking this joy seems greater than what it should be. Um, they're looking more at us than they're looking at the man. We, we need to now communicate to them that this was through the power of the Lord Jesus. All these things are probably going through their minds but then before they know it, in verse 13, they start seeing the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, bringing the oxen and garlands into the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people. Now, verse 14 is, is when it shows that this, this is where Paul and Barnabas now process the whole matter, either through translators who are now explaining to Paul and Barnabas what's going on, that Barnabas and Paul understood they think we are gods and these animals are to be sacrifices unto us as if we are jupiter and mercurius mercury well let, let's talk about the myth and what i mean about the myth is is something that ovid the roman poet had written around 50 years before this. So it is obvious that these people w would be resonating with this poem of Ovid. And, and not just because this was from the Roman and Greek world, but because this poem was regarding this very area, the hill country of Phrygia, which is this very area. And now this, this poem 
was in essence um, bringing as if it were true. And you know how all the mythology of the Greek and Roman gods speaking of what they did many hundreds and even thousands of years before the days of the Roman and Greek people. It was to make the Roman and Greek people think these things were true, but they were all myths. That's why they're called mythology. Well, this was the story of, of this area and, and even regarding the very ancestors of this people that Jupiter and Mercury, and those were the Roman names, and if it were the Greek names, it would be Zeus and Hermes. And in the, in the um, poem, it's the name of Zeus and Hermes that they visited that Phrygian hill area. And they went from house to house seeking hospitality. They visited a thousand homes and not a single one of those opened their homes to them. Because they were looking like humans, they were looking um, um, simple without any trace of divinity. And a thousand homes rejected them until they would have arrived at the home of an elderly couple called Philemon and Baucis. And this elderly couple lived in a very humble cottage made out of straw and reeds, and they readily welcomed these strangers and offered them warm hospitality. The poem shows that they offered a banquet that they could hardly afford, but they did it out of, out of a heart for hospitality. And that's when those strangers revealed themselves to be the the false gods that they were, Hermes and Zeus. And as a reward for their generosity, their home was turned into a temple with marble columns and a golden roof. And the couple were further rewarded by being turned into priests to serve those gods in that temple for the remaining of their lives. And as a punishment to all those 1,000 homes that rejected them, their homes were destroyed. So that's what the poem told. That's what these people would have had as somewhat of a history of only um, of hundreds of years before, but the poem was about 50 years old. So many commentators believe that this is one big reason why the people reacted as they did. Um, they did have a temple of Jupiter in that, the very gates of that city. You, you see here the priest of Jupiter who's ready to come and do his part. And when they see this miracle and, and they have in the back of their minds that, that a time in the past Jupiter and Hermes did visit us and Mercury visited us as humans. Here these men are like humans. They did a majestic miracle before us. We better welcome them because we don't want our homes destroyed. And who knows our whole city will turn into a great palatial place for the, for the gods. You know, they, they kind of held that story dear to their hearts, and they're not wanting to do the mistake of what they think would have been the mistake of their forefathers. You know, whether this myth was in the minds of a lot of people, we, we, we don't know to what degree, but we do know that in their superstitious minds, they attributed the power of healing that lame man to the gods that they knew, Jupiter and Mercury. So that, that's the myth. And now this, this leads us to our second point, to the message and then the response of the mom. 
Well, as soon as Paul acknowledges, when Paul and Barnabas see heard of in verse 14, so whichever way it became clear to them that those animals are to be sacrificed to them, that these people have identified these two men as if they are deity incarnate, Look what they did. They rent their clothes. They ran in among the people crying out. And, and here's where their message comes through. And, and we're going to look at this message, um, looking at it step by step. There, there are basically seven phases in this message. There's, there's something that comes before the message proper, and then there are the words of the message proper. But as we look at these seven brief um, points, notice... This sermon comes in a, in, a very, in a very different form, but yet it becomes a picture in a sense of every sermon and what every sermon in a way is supposed to be. It's a sermon in the form of a protest, or you could say a sermon within a protest. The people are here. They're, they're not about to. They, they are worshiping the very preachers. And these preachers are there with the intent to turn the hearts of those people to worship the true God. But while they're there ministering to the people, they're acknowledging, wait, the people are worshiping us, but we want their hearts to worship God. So what do we do? We need to protest this worship toward us and hope to help them see that they should worship the one true God. We are not gods. We are humans as they are. We want them to know the true God. And so this is what I mean about a protest. They, they are protesting their false worship because they're not there to be worshipped. They're, they're much to the contrary. They want to help these people realize they need to turn away from their, these vain things and worship the one true God. So Paul was forced in the midst of what followed to, to preach a sermon while seeking to stop his listeners to offer a sacrifice to him and Barnabas. And, and here's what I mean, that this is now a picture, in a sense, of what every sermon, in essence, is. Um, here I am preaching, and you've heard other preachers preach to you. We as preachers don't know where every heart is. It is as if we are like Paul and Barnabas who do not understand the language that the people are saying. I do not understand the hearts that are listening. But there are many different hearts. And lo and behold, there may be hearts here who are worshiping false gods. There may be hearts that are worshiping even preachers. And your God is not the true God, but, but men. And, and as I preach, the, the intention is that you would understand that you are to cease from those vain things and worship the one true God. And every sermon is, in a sense, a, a protest against what goes on in your heart that would be wrong. And whatever is right, we, we want to encourage that and commend that to the Lord and that you grow more and more in the likeness of Christ and for the glory of God. So to whatever degree there would be hearts here that would be like the Lyconian hearts who are instead of worshiping the true God, you are worshiping anything less than God. This sermon and every sermon you hear, you have to envision the preacher much like a Paul 
who would run into the people, tear his clothes, because he's so indignant with the thought that you would worship me? By all means, do not do this. I am a man like you are. You see what Paul is doing. He, he is bringing a very big illustration to his sermon. And he's showing, look at my flesh. I am skin and bones as you are. The last thing in your heart should be to offer a sacrifice to me. And this is what we do as we preach. In our hearts, our desire is that every one of us together, even the preacher, that our hearts would be heavenward. That none of us would exit these doors worshiping anything less than God himself. Because if you do, you are like these who are simply going after vain things. That's what Paul says about their worship. And and it's amazing how Paul was such a part and parcel of all that was happening. They are seeking to give Paul the greatest honor that in a sense can ever be given to a to a person on this earth to be thought of as a God. Paul in his humanity could think, wow, that sounds amazing. But no. He says, what you're doing is vain. I don't care about the honor you're giving me. That is vain. I don't want that honor because in that honor you sin and you're far from the true God that I want you to know so that you will be saved. And you will be blessed. And we will together be in the same heaven one day. And I will look at you and realize what a blessing that you stopped worshiping me. And now we together can worship the one true God. And so let us go there to chapter 14 and look at this message. The seven steps that were followed. So the first thing, step number one. Paul and Barnabas display their horror. I could say that they display their disagreement, but the word disagreement is so little compared to really what was happening. They were disagreeing. They're wanting to worship them, and they don't want it, so it's a disagreement. But they're not just in disagreement. They are terrorized. They are in horror. And, and I use this word strongly because of this renting of their clothes. And when was the last time you, you saw a preacher tearing his clothes because he was indignant with the idolatry in your heart and he was just terrified with the thought that if you continue with that idolatry, you will have no part with God. See, this is what Paul and Barnabas are doing. And of course, it had to do with their culture and their way where where they want to show what's in their hearts in a very visible way. But this is what they do. They tear their clothes. They were showing their strong aversion. Don't worship us. Don't do that. I would would rather be dishonored with torn clothes than that you would honor me as a god. Because I'm not. And then secondly, they, they show a sincere concern for the people. Because as soon as they tear their clothes, they ran in among the people. And it, what you see here is this idea. Here they are probably, um, you give the idea that they are somewhere where people can see them better. 
because they are seeing the commotion. They could be, like the word that comes to my mind is like, like a pedestal of sorts, where they can see what's going on, and they, they probably think, as long as I remain here, almost like on a column where they can gaze upon, I'm still in a sense higher than they are, and I want to make very clear, I am as human as they are, so they rush into the people. And they probably understand they can't speak loud enough so that the whole crowd can hear, so they will convince each heart at a moment, so they can speak to this man here and explain it, and then to this man there, and then to this lady over there, and maybe that man with the, with the oxen and make him have some sense. I am human. Touch me. Feel me. My clothes are torn. If I were a god, maybe my clothes would not tear, but I, I'm a human. So they display their horror. They have a concern for the people. And, and one thing is probably ringing in their hearts. Remember, not too long ago, we read about Herod. He had that speech. The people applauded him. Remember, he had that robe. It is Josephus who says what that robe looked like. It was little pieces of mirror connected to each other. So in the brilliance of the sunshine, it sparked brilliantly. And as people were hearing Herod speak, they said, it's here in the Bible, in the book of Acts, they said, this is the voice of a God and not of a man. Josephus, in his history, he says, Herod took the applause of men. He accepted their praise. In the book of Acts, we read that he received that praise as if he was God. And immediately he was struck by an angel. And so Paul and Barnabas know the danger of being applauded as if you're a God and staying, as it were, upon a pedestal and receiving and taking it all in. So instead, they, they, they tear their clothes and run into the people. You see what's happening. Paul and Barnabas want to be as far as they can from the sin of Herod before it happens to them that they would be struck dead. They understand the great danger of blasphemy if they were to accept that applause. And so thirdly, um, here comes the bold rebuke of, of the error of the people. It's in the first words that they use. So as they rush to the people, verse 15, it says, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you. So right with these words, they are making very clear, you all are wrong. We are as human as you are. You know, the, the, the nature of the problem here is you think we, you ascribe divinity to us. Our duty is to reveal to you that that is far from the truth. We are not divine. We are not Ju, uh, Jupiter. We are not Hermes, Paul, Mercury. We are not Zeus. We have nothing divine about us. We, yes, God is the one who did that miracle. And we serve a divine being, but we are not divine. That's the bold rebuke of their error. And then comes, number four, a declaration of a message. See, the, here they will acknowledge they are there for a purpose. They're, they're not doing tourism in Lystra. They are there to preach. And look at the very next step when they say we are men like you. He says, and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities. 
See, we are here to preach. We, we are here to proclaim. We are here to give you a message. And, and, and the message is, is not that we are gods. We are here to give a message that there is a God. So, he, so there's this declaration that they have a message. And that's number four. And then number five, they will explain their error. And in one word, he told them what he thought of their religion. And he called it vanities. And in that little word, um, see, we preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities. Now think of how experiential this sermon was. Those vanities were right there before them. And and later we will get to the chapter where Paul is in Athens and he speaks of the idolatry because of the statues that are everywhere. Well, right here, the idolatry is in their hearts. They're about to worship. They are worshiping Paul and Barnabas. They're about to offer burnt offerings to them. And he's saying, these very things you're doing, beloved people, these are vanities. He explains their error. He's explaining that their devotion, their ceremonies, their worship, and their gods have no purpose. That's what the word vanities mean. They have no profit. They are unreasonable. They are irrational. They are nothing. Vanity, the whole idea of vanity is a nothingness element. Fruitless, empty, useless. And, and think how powerful it is, again, thinking, if you're a human, there's the temptation to be liked. They are being very liked, but they are disdaining that because that way of being liked is sinful. If Paul and Barnabas were to accept any of that, they would be sinning in the way of deceiving all the folk of Lystra. And they want to be far from that, so they say, what you are doing has nothing to it. That's their error. Then number six, they have an instruction of what they must do. And beloved, I'm, I'm always struck by this reality that even though it's true that we can do nothing to save ourselves, because we can't, we're lost, and we need Christ to work in us. And yet the preacher must always tell People, what they must do. And we explain very clearly, this does not mean you have the power to save yourself, but you need guidance and direction to leave the darkness of your existence. These are people who were in the very muck of their sins, worshiping a man, two men. And Paul tells them what they're to do. So after he says that they are doing vain things, and in verse 15, look, to turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and sea and all things that are therein. This point six is really just looking at the word turn. Paul is saying that this is why I'm here. I'm here to teach you to turn away from these vain things to the living God. That is what they need to do. They need to turn. And beloved, as soon as he uses that one turn and the word turn from these things to God, you know what you have here without using the vocabulary that we're so familiar with? Paul is in essence preaching to them repentance and faith. 
because they are to turn from those vanities of worshiping Jews and Jupiter, Jupiter and all those false gods. Turn away from that. But where do they go? They go to the one true God. Paul is telling them, I am here to tell you, people, listen to me. Repent and believe. And beloved, isn't that what you hear from preachers everywhere? And you should. And I pray that it is what you hear from me, that you are to repent and to believe. That is what you must do. If you haven't yet turned from sin and gone to Jesus, this is what you need to do. Turn from sin. Turn from the world. Turn from forsaking things of this world for your pleasure. Whatever God it might be that you're actually pursuing, turn from that and pursue the one true and living God. This is my message to you, to your own heart. This is God's message to you. A preacher never has an original message in our own hearts. We are here simply bringing God's word to yours. And the message of God's word is turn. And in a sense, this is a message to every single believer, isn't it? Because constantly in our lives, we need to repent. And we need to realize, no, this way of dealing, this pride that I have in my heart, this attraction I have in my heart, all of these things are sinful. I have to turn. But as soon as we turn, we have a direction to go. And it's our God and Savior. And we go to God through the Lord Jesus, through the power of the Spirit. Turn from these vanities that's repentance unto the living God that is faith so that's a sixth step and then seventh he gives an instruction who God is very few words but we find all these steps in it a display of their horror sincere concern for the people a bold rebuke of their error a declaration that they have a message they're there to preach an explanation of their error, your ways are vain, an instruction of what to do, turn to the true God, the living God. But he doesn't leave them with a blank of who this God is or even with just one word, living God. He says a few more things about who God is. And look at the beauty here. If, if he's telling them to turn to God, it is only, only polite in a sense and right and honorable and fruitful to say who God this is, who, who, who is this God? And if, if I am to turn to the one true God, can you tell me who He is so that I can identify Him and so that I can know who He is? Is He worthy of me to turn to Him? Is He actually worthy of being the one attention of my life? That everything else of my life I could call vain things if I were to pursue and that my one pursuit would be Him. Well, who is he? And look what Paul says. Turn from these vanities, verse 15, to the living God, and here he begins to describe him, which made heaven and earth. He's the creator of everything. He made heaven and he made earth, the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness. And then he will say what these witnesses were. And that he did good and gave us rain, number one, from heaven. And fruitful seasons, number two. Filling our hearts with food, number three. And gladness, number four. The rain, 
gave the harvest, which gave us food, which gave us gladness. And these are four witnesses that God has given. We can all see them. All of us can see rain. All of us can see harvest. All of us can see food. All of us can eat it. And all of us know the joy that food brings to our hearts. All of us know that tinge of hunger. And the moment you sit for a meal, that sweet gladness. Paul is saying that's a witness. And when you're before that meal... Boys and girls, you know how you're there wanting to eat it, but you know you need to wait. You're going to pray. You're going to thank the Lord. But the smell of the food, it's it's, it's already bringing joy to your heart. There was rain. There was harvest. There's food. And there's already gladness in your heart. Paul is saying that God is the God that you must turn to. The God who is worthy of the focus of your life. Everything else that you would pursue is secondary to this one God. Because nothing in this world has created heaven and earth. Nothing in this world has power to bring a harvest. Nothing else has power to give you food. And nothing can give you that gladness and make you live other than this God. He, he, he uses the farmer, he uses the insecticide and the herbicide, and he uses fertilizer. He, he uses the irrigation of all the food. He uses you working so that you have food and so that you can buy food and bring it home. Of course, he uses all those things. But see, it's God who even has given wisdom to men to be able to make harvests even more fruitful. God is the supreme one above everything. And even as we are in this world speaking of AI and, and, and all of the dangers and the mysteries, well, AI is nothing but this astonishing reality of computer work and who has given wisdom for all of that to be possible. It is God who has given the wisdom for men to, to be able to invent all of this technology. And God is the one, Paul is saying, who is worthy to be pursued, to be followed. And all of this preaching is in the midst of a protest because the hearts of his hearers are bent upon worshiping him, Paul, and Barnabas as if they were gods. And the whole message of Paul is, no, there is a true God. Now, because these men were not Jews, he doesn't go directly to the Old Testament. But he does go to Revelation. You know how we do speak of special revelation, which is God's word. But we do also speak of general revelation, which is creation. God does reveal himself through his creation. Um, Calvin says this, he says, There is within the human mind, and indeed by natural instinct, an awareness of divinity. See, an awareness. Every human is aware that there is a divine being. Then he continues, What what is set forth in Scripture concerning God's secret providence was never so extinguished from men's hearts without some sparks always glowing in the darkness. And Calvin calls this the the seed of religion. 
anywhere you go throughout the world, and, and, and this really impressed the minds of, of the, 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 the discoverers of the 15 and 1600s as they went to different places. They were able to testify this reality that no matter where you go, you find people. They can be living very primitively, but they have a sense of the divine. They have a sense of a divine being. They are scared of him. They are confused about him. They speak in terms of plurality of gods because they think of a God maybe manifesting in rain and maybe manifesting in sun and maybe manifesting in war and, or in fertility. And so they think they should go to these different gods. But see, this is in the heart of humanity a concept of the divine. And this is exactly what Paul is making use of. He is saying, you all have a concept of the divine. You're thinking, I am divine. Well, I will tell you, that is vain. I have come from one who is divine. And in Romans 1, and and I want to take a time to read that, it is a very important passage to have in our minds from time to time for us to understand um, the anatomy of the soul of every single human, not, not just a religious person. In Romans 1, um, verse 18, it starts here. This is the passage that speaks of the power of, special, of, of general revelation. The reality that in the minds of every single person, don't let them trick you. They will tell you, I'm an atheist. They will tell you, well, I'm a Mormon or I'm a Muslim. But that does not mean you can't tell them about the one true God. Because down deep in their hearts, they know that He exists. Look at Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. See, they hold the truth. They suppress it. They know it exists, but they suppress it with their sin, with their unrighteousness. Then verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. The little word in is monumental. It is not manifest outside of them. It is manifest in them. For God hath shown it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened. What Paul gives us as doctrine in Romans 1 that we just read... He is applying it in Acts 14. When he sees these people coming to offer him sacrifices as if he was a God, he understood these people have a concept of God. I just need to teach them who the true God is. So he gives his message. But then there's a reality of the mob. So here the the people were hearing Paul say this. And you can imagine the people who were there, some were probably being um, understanding what Paul was saying and starting to think. And this is probably the process in their minds. Wait, if these two were really Jupiter and Hermes and, and Mercury, maybe they would have accepted our worship. So maybe it's true that they're not. 
They, they were being convinced, but it was being hard to convince. When, when we read in, in Acts 14, the, the sense that we have is that it was hard, but they did it. And with these sayings, verse 18, scarce restrained they the people. They were restrained, but it was hard to restrain them. It was like the fire was lit. Maybe the animal began to be slain. It, it, it was hard to make them stop, but they did stop. That They had done sacrifice unto them. So there was a success, but it, at the very heels of this success, and you can imagine the hearts of the people, it's not like they're happy. They, they are troubled. Okay, they will not offer sacrifice to, to these men whom we thought were gods, but maybe aren't. We're confused. We don't want to err like those people hundreds of years ago, and then our homes will be destroyed. And yet, if they're saying they're not gods, I guess we did what we could do. They're in this kind of trance, in this kind of confusion, when the Jews come from Iconium and Antioch, the Towns before where they were almost persecuted, they arrive in verse 19, who persuaded the people. Just that little word, persuaded the people, before the phrase that Paul is stoned. You can imagine, maybe this was, what, 20, 30 minutes, maybe an hour. They were there persuading that this very people who were confused about Paul and Barnabas, who decided to stop the party, they're being told, These men are troublemakers. They've been to our cities and towns. We were about to stone him, the last town. Why don't we do this now? And that mob turned from being worshipers of Paul and Barnabas to becoming persecutors of Paul and Barnabas. Now, now there's something here that happens that was very... Um, symbolic with what was happening there. Remember that priest that was bringing the oxen and we heard of those garlands. Those garlands were, were, were wreaths of flour with ribbons that would be put upon the sacrifice, on, put upon the horns of the oxen. And it was like the oxen was crowned before it was slain. And since this oxen will be what we offer to our gods, we will crown it so that it's received, as it were, with honor. But then, at the end of the day, it has to die. So it goes from one moment being crowned to the next being slain. And there's a parallel here of what happened to Paul. He was crowned in their hearts as a god. It was like a garland of flowers over the crown of Paul. But at the end of the story... He's slain. They wanted to offer him a sacrifice, but at the end of the day, they turned him into one. He was the crowned one, and then he was a slain one. And beloved, it is here that we enter our third point. This is where Paul is, in a sense, like a martyr. There's some debate whether Paul did die. And then when he stands up, there's definitely an element of a miracle that to be stoned. And yet the very next verse, howbeit as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city. If he didn't die, it was still a miracle that he rose up so quickly after being stoned. It's not like they're taking him in, in a bed. He rose up. So some people believe it was actually a resurrection. We don't know. Um, the commentators also say we don't know. It's, it's not like we can be dogmatic about this. But what, what we do know is that this is a picture of one as if he died. 
and then a picture of one who rose as if from the dead. It's a lot like little Isaac when he's offered on that altar by his father. And when he's about to offer Isaac in obedience to God, the angel comes and says, don't do it. And there was a sacrifice that he puts in the place of Isaac. And Isaac is as if one who is sacrificed. And when he comes back alive to his daddy, he's as if one who arose from the dead. He's a picture of Jesus. And beloved, this is where we see In a different way now in our text, we have seen Christ in the messages. We have seen Christ in the love of his disciples. We have seen Christ in the power of of making people um, rise from the dead and from lameness be able to, to walk who had never walked. But now we see Christ in the life of Paul. Because notice this one thing, beloved. Paul and Barnabas were almost stoned in the city before. Notice in verse 5, you have the word stone in verse 14. I mean, chapter 14, verse 5. They were planning to stone him. Beloved, if you were to be evangelizing in some neighborhood in New Jersey, and the last you heard of that neighborhood is that they were planning to stone you, would you go anywhere close to that neighborhood again? If we are to follow Paul's example, then we would. Yes, you'll be wise and not go right there where the planning is, but you'll go to the next place that needs the witness of Christ. And we had the example of John Mark who saw things were tough and we don't know to what degree, but he went back home. Paul and Barnabas keep going. And it's because of this. The people who are lost need to hear about Jesus. And they will hear about Jesus from the Word because they will tell them about Jesus from the pages of Scriptures. He was promised in the Old Testament. He came in the New. Paul could say, I saw Jesus. He is not dead. He spoke to me. And anywhere, anyone living in those days could say, I want to go meet those apostles. I want to talk to Thomas. Thomas said that he didn't believe. And then I heard that he did believe when he saw Jesus. I want to sit down and, and talk to Thomas. Anyone in those days could do that. If, of course, if they had money to travel. But then here's Paul in that city saying that the Messiah came. And in that day in Lystra, as they tried to worship Paul, They saw Jesus. You wonder how many people were saved with that event. But it certainly did strengthen the disciples. The disciples stood round about him. And he rose up and came into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And what is he going to go do in Derbe? He's going to teach them about Jesus. What we have here is... Jesus, His presence, and His power, not only, as it were, outside, but inside. And beloved, we we need to understand that this, this is a truth. 
We upon this earth are the body of Christ. He is the head. We are the body so that as we live and as we show love to one another and as we go to places where maybe our lives are in danger, but we are willing to preach the gospel to those people even if we die. See, as we're doing this, we are Christ to them. We are witnesses of the Lord Jesus If you go back to verse 17, and I end with this verse. Remember, he said to those people, Nevertheless, he left not himself without witnesses. And then remember, he listed the rain, and he listed the harvest, and he listed the food, and he listed the gladness. And you know what God's word is doing? It's listing Paul. The word witness in verse 17 is the word from which the word martyr comes from. See, the rain is like a martyr. The the, the harvest is like a martyr in the sense that they are witnesses. And with Paul there in the city, he and Barnabas are witnesses. Because after all, why would you go to a town where you know they might kill you if it's actually a lie that there is a man called Jesus who arose from the grave and it didn't happen? But it did. It's a truth. Paul saw this man and said, Who art thou? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. And now Paul is ready to tell the whole known world that there is a Messiah. He died on the cross, and he's alive. I saw him. You can kill him, kill me, but I will tell you the truth. No one dies for a lie. No one dies even for confusion. No one dies for a doubt. And beloved, this is why it's so essential that you would know, if you are truly born again, that you would know you were born again. Because if you don't know, why would you ever die? This is perhaps why there's so many lack of those missionaries from the old days with all that heroic heart and willingness to suffer because of a certainty of these truths in God's word and the certainty that I'm not alone. Jesus is with me. He's not just with me. He is in me. And as I live for his honor and glory and in obedience to his name, perchance people will see Jesus in my very life. And that's what they saw in Paul, the witness. And that's what every Christian is supposed to be. And may the world round about us see Jesus in you. And if you're not saved yet, that you would then obey the summons of God and turn to the living God. Turn to Jesus. You know today much more than the Lystrians knew that very day. They heard of God in general. You have heard of God in specifics. This God who is living, He hasn't just sent rain and food. He has sent His Son. And His Son has lived and He has died. He's died for sinners so that each and every one of us who believes in Him will never die but live forever and all our sins would be forgiven. Do you believe this? Because if you do, with true faith, you are saved. And to you is the promise 
that as you go and tell others, he will go right with you and in you, and you will be a witness. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God Almighty, we thank Thee, Lord, for having gone with Paul and Barnabas, that they were not alone, that none of these apostles, none of these disciples, Philip and Peter and Barnabas, and as they went from town to town, and even John Mark, that we see that he did go back home, but he just reminds us, Lord, of the weakness and frailty of our own humanity. How much, how many, Lord, of us identify with John Mark? And how encouraged we are that later we hear Paul say that he wants John Mark to come and how he meant so much to him so that Mark grew and he became a witness of Christ. Lord, make us to believe these things. Help us to believe we're not alone, Lord, in this world that Thou, Lord, Jesus, art with us. Thy presence and Thy power. And help us to be bold. Help us to be brave. Help us to be wise and careful. And that none of us would be needlessly um, um, challenging or daring of danger. But that we would be bold to speak for Christ. And that we would trust thy providence and thy help and thy presence and thy power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.